Good morning, Village Church. For those that do not know me, my name is Jake, and I serve on staff here at Village as the youth director, and I am thankful for another opportunity to come before you this morning and open God's Word together. Uh, Real quickly, I wanted to give, I haven't been able to give an update from the stage yet about camp. This past summer, we took 38 students to camp. Don't worry, they all came back, uh, so that's a positive. But every year when I'm doing fundraising, I tell you guys that you're giving money to advance the mission of Jesus because Jesus changes lives at camp. And so I just wanted to let you know that we had three students go from death to life at camp this summer, which is amazing that Jesus still saves. He still is doing his work and it's going to be exciting. We're going to have a couple of them get baptized here in a few weeks. And so rejoice in that, celebrate with them, make sure to go tell them how excited you are for them when you see them uh, get baptized coming up. But second, every time I'm up here, I want to extend the invite for Village students. We meet every Sunday night from 6.30 to 8. So if you're a 6th to 12th grader in the room or the parent of a 6th to 12th grader, I want to invite you to come out tonight and join us to check out Village students. We have all of the typical things of your student ministries, the great snacks, the great games, the great events. But the big thing that we do is we focus on God's word. And my goal is to have a 6th grader come in that may not have a firm foundation in their faith, but to walk away in 12th grade as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you to come out, become a part of what God is doing at Village Students because he is doing a great work there. But as for this morning, we're going to continue in our series on the book of Colossians. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Colossians 1, uh, in verse 9 is where we're starting. But last week, Steve walked us through the opening of the book. He showed us that what we need to do is filter our lives through the lens of the gospel, that everything we do should have the gospel at the forefront and center, that the gospel is our source and our root of truth in our lives. And so this week, we're going to see the Apostle Paul continue this thought concerning how we apply the gospel to the Christian life. But I think this portion of Colossians answers some very pivotal questions about your walk with Jesus. And they're questions that you are going to ask at some point or another. They're questions like this. What is the will of God for my life? How do I endure through the Christian life? And how can I be thankful when everything in my life seems to be in ruin? And so this morning, we're going to start in verse 9. Here's what God's Word says. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Point number one this morning, God's will for your life is found through Scripture. God's will for your life is found through Scripture. See, Paul opens up this section of Colossians which, with what I think is a remarkable phrase, okay? So he looks to the church at Colossae and he says, I have not ceased to pray for you. I want you to think about being just your average member of that church. 
that the Apostle Paul is a gigantic figure in the world at this time of Christianity, that he has planted countless churches. They know how God has used him to advance the gospel, and he is a pivotal part of the apostles. And so this man looks to you, and he's writing a letter to your church, and the first thing that he says to you is, hey, I just want to let you know that since the day I heard about you, I have not ceased to pray for you. How incredible is that? That the Apostle Paul would pray for them in that way. But I think this is a place where we do need to talk about what that means when he says that he's praying never ceasing, because that doesn't mean that he's praying for them every second of the day. That is impossible. Like we struggle to pray for two minutes sometimes. Imagine trying to pray constantly, right? So that's not what that can mean. So when we look at scripture and you see that in scripture, what that means though, is that it is a consistent pattern in the prayer life of Paul, that every day he's going before God and praying for this church. So just think about how much encouragement that would give them. But it also gives them a glimpse into the prayer life of the Apostle Paul and what he's praying specifically for them. And so when we look at this passage and what Paul is praying for here, it's the same thing that us as a staff at Village pray for you. And the prayer is that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will. And so I know now whenever I say the will of God, immediately your brain is going to go haywire and you're going to be thinking about the top 10 things right now, specifically that you need to know the will of God on in your life. And we do have things in our lives that we feel like we need the answers to from God. Things like what college should I attend? Going from there, should I marry this girl or not? Should we have kids once we're married? Should we buy this new house? Should I buy this new car? Should I take this job promotion? Should I retire? And so we have these questions and we think that God is going to answer them sometimes in very obvious and sometimes odd ways, okay? So I call this like the burning bush moment. And we don't believe this, but we act like it sometimes. So here's how this works. You're sitting at your desk at work and all of a sudden your MacBook catches on fire, okay? Flames shoot up, and all of a sudden, I hear God's voice, and he says, Jake, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Take that job promotion, for I am the Lord, and I will be with you. Has that ever happened to anybody in this room? If it has, please come and talk to me afterwards, because that's an incredible story. But it doesn't, right? The will of God doesn't work like that, but we want it to. We just want God to give us the answer. What am I supposed to do? And so what Paul argues for here is something that's completely different than that. You see, he says that we're to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in what he calls all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what Paul's doing here is making the case that there is a difference between earthly wisdom and spiritual wisdom. You see, earthly wisdom originates from and dies with you. But spiritual wisdom originates from God and it continues forever. And so in order to understand God's will, we need to see that wisdom goes beyond our own mind's capability, that we need spiritual wisdom and understanding from God himself. So the question then is, how do you get that? How do you get spiritual wisdom and understanding? And I'm thankful that God has made this clear to us. He says in his word that spiritual wisdom and understanding begins with a proper attitude towards himself. 
This is what Proverbs 1, 7 says, pretty famous verse. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So knowledge or wisdom here begins with a proper view of God. When you have this view of God and you fear God, what it does is it takes the throne of your life where you sit before Jesus and it takes you off of the throne and it puts Jesus on the throne. And when that transfer happens, what results is that we begin to rely on him to teach us. And that's where we gain spiritual wisdom and understanding. So then we have to say, how does God teach us these things? How does he give us this spiritual wisdom? And for that, we have to say his word. That's the only thing he's given us, but it is sufficient for us to know what his will is for our lives. You see, the Bible is so clear over and over again that the will of God is not found in these miraculous moments or this moment where God speaks directly to you about the specific thing that you're going through. No, rather, it's the daily growth that you have in the knowledge of God and his word that reveals his will for you. In fact, his word many times, did you know that it tells you exactly what God's will is for your life? And so this morning, if you're struggling with that, if you're questioning what God's will is for your life, I want to encourage you with three verses here quickly. Here's your first one. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. It says, for this is the will of God. Perfect, right? That's pretty clear. This is the will of God. So we should listen to what that says. Look at what it says. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So what's the will of God for every Christian's life? To become more like Jesus, to be sanctified. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What's the will of the Lord in that passage? Look carefully how you walk. Have wisdom. Be wise, not in your own eyes, but through God and through who he is. Walk wisely. 1 Peter 2.15, it says, For this is the will of God. Once again, he can't make it any easier. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So what's the will of God? For us to do good, to glorify him. And you see, these are just a few examples in God's word where we see him tell us what his will is for our lives. But my question is, what do all of these things have in common? And this takes us back to Colossians 1. You see, these things are based on the foundation of God's word. How do we know what his will is? We just read it. It's in his word. And Paul reiterates this at the end of verse 10 here in Colossians. He tells us that we need to be increasing in the knowledge of God. And so the will of God, therefore, is pretty clear. It's to make us more like Christ through his power of his written word on a day-to-day -day basis in our lives. But this power, however, does not stop with the knowledge. It doesn't stop with just a proper understanding of God, but it actually funnels into every part of your life. Go back to the text. Verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Did you catch it? That he says this knowledge of God's will should result in what? Three things, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, 
lives fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit in every good work. Church, do you believe that? Do you believe what God says there, that you can live a life that is fully pleasing to the God of the universe, that you can bear fruit in whatever you do, that in Jesus, that you have that unlimited possibility. Why? Because he lives in you and his spirit moves in you. You see, spiritual knowledge and our knowledge of God's word affects everything our hand touches. That's the driving force to the Christian life. And my fear for many of you is that you are sitting there waiting for God to give you the sign in the sky as to what you're specifically to do on a day-to-day basis in your life when God is looking at us and he's saying, I gave it to you. It's right here. It's in the pages of this book. Everything I've given you is sufficient for your life is right here. Learn it, trust it, read it, make decisions based on it. His word is sufficient, friends. See, this became real for me when I was a college student. Um, I went to a Christian college originally uh, to study music for worship ministry. Um, I loved singing. That's one of my favorite things. I I did it a lot more back then. Now I've gone to preaching because I like that more. But I did that and I was pretty good at it. But the only issue was I knew nothing about music, Uh, nothing about music theory. I just wanted to be the next Jeremy Camp. I'm just going to level with you. I had the faux hawk and everything. I mean, I was pretty awesome, not going to lie. But I got to my first music theory class Got a weekend, took my first test, and I got a 41. And I said, well, that's not good. But I was like, maybe I'll get better on the second one. So I studied for the second one, and then I got a 38, I think. Um, And so I went to the dean of my department, and I told him, uh, I don't think this is going to work out. I don't actually think this is what God wants me to do. And I'll never forget that he looked at me, and he said, Jake, this is the will of God for your life for you to be a worship leader. And I looked at him and I said, the grades don't show it. I don't see it. And I don't think that's right. And so then I said, I need to go talk to somebody who's going to give me a blunt, honest answer. And so I went to the one person who always in my life has given me a blunt, honest answer. And that's Steve Gentry. If you didn't know, I've known Pastor Steve since I was 15 years old. He was my Bible teacher my freshman year of high school. I went to Village for the first year that it, when it launched for that first year, I was here as a part of that. And Steve's always been a big part of my life. And so I went back to him and I said, hey, uh, what do you think about this? And I've been struggling, right? Because it's like, this is a big decision. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And I said, Steve, what should I do? And he said, ah, I don't know, just get a Bible degree. And I'm like, oh, I'm so, so thankful that my life is so simple for you. So thankful. Amazing. But I thought about what he said. And in the end, I said, I guess I'm just going to do it. And can I tell you that that decision completely changed the trajectory of my life? That I wouldn't be doing this, I don't think, if I didn't do that. But what I learned through that was very important. You see, what I needed was not all the answers to every lingering question that I had about life and what I was supposed to be doing for a living. What I needed and what you need is to saturate ourselves in this. And when I saturate my life in scripture, 
the questions that are lingering in my life start to be clarified. When I look to his word, I can find answers for the questions that are so difficult to answer. You see, his word determines his will for me and my life. So how do you know who to marry? Look to the word. See what God describes as a godly man or a godly woman. Do they meet that criteria? How do we know if we should have children? I look to God's word and I see that children are a blessing from God. How do I know if you should take that job promotion? I look to the word and I see that God tells me to live with eternity in mind, to have my priorities as godly priorities and not earthly ones. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to have to look at that job and say, is this job going to take me away from my responsibility as a father and as a husband? Is this job going to take me away from my ability to make disciples of Jesus? You see, in all these situations and more, those who live according to scripture can be confident that they're living in the will of God. Friends, that's what he promises us here. If you live according to this, that is where the will of God is found. But Paul's prayer does not end with them simply understanding and applying scripture. Point number two this morning, the power of God is necessary for patience, endurance, and joy. The power of God is necessary for patience, endurance, and joy. Picking up in verse 10 again. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, with all endurance and patience, with joy. You see, just when we thought it was hard enough talking about God's will, it seems Paul hits us with another impossible challenge. It's three words that we all struggle with, endurance, patience, and joy. And so we have to ask, how does Paul say that we can have all of these things in our life? What is his answer? He says the answer is in the power from God's glorious might. Now, I know you might be saying, Jake, I've been a Christian for a while. What you're saying there is not exactly breaking news, okay? That I know I need God's power in my life. And so that's great. I'm glad that you know that. But can we just be honest about our life on a day-to-day basis with our little trials that we go through? How do we react to God when those things happen? For instance, in the morning, when you wake up, but your alarm doesn't go off, right? You set three, none of them go off, and you tell your boss it didn't go off. But you're late for work. You go, God, why would you do this to me? You get to work and someone took your favorite parking spot. God, are you not sovereign? Your kids act slightly out of line. God, can you please help me understand what you're doing here? Or even something as silly as your favorite team losing, which happens to me constantly. God, do you even care about me? You see, if we don't even have the strength to not let these silly things weaken our faith in God, what makes you think that you're gonna remain strong when true trials come into your life? That's where we have to be honest with ourselves. You see, the difference between someone who endures well, has joy, and has patience comes down to who holds the power in their lives. And friends, many times we live as though we have the power and strength in ourselves to do the things that are necessary to live the Christian life. That Jesus is over in a corner in a box 
and we're going to let him stay there and we got it until we don't have it. Then we let Jesus out of the box. Jesus, fix my mess and then get back in the box. That's not the Christian life, friends. That's not what Paul is talking about here. What Paul says here is the exact opposite. He says that we need to cling to Christ, that we need to be strengthened by his power according to his glorious might. You see, it goes back to the throne of your heart. If Christ is on the throne, who's going to be the one to strengthen your life? It's going to be him. It can't be you. Your life is no longer yours. And you cannot live the Christian life without the strength of Jesus. See, Paul makes this clear in Ephesians 3. Starting in verse 16, he says this, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So friends, according to that verse, how do you have patience in this life? Through the power of Christ, how do you endure suffering? Through the power of Christ, how do you have joy in the darkest of times? Through the power of Jesus Christ. You see, when we look to his word for strength, what we find there is an endless supply, Paul says there in Ephesians. The breadth, the length, the height, the depth of the love and the strength that God has for you as a chosen son or daughter of his. His power is unlimited for you. So friends, whatever you're facing right now, I can guarantee you one thing. No matter how dark it is, no matter how difficult your situation may be, it is not stronger than Jesus Christ. And he has power to endure you until the end. But what it requires of us is to stop relying on our own power for us to get off of the throne and put Jesus back on the throne, to cling to our Savior, to say, Jesus, I can't do this alone. I can't do this without you. And so I'm going to cling to you and hold on to you as the one who holds ultimate power. So Paul shows us God's will is found in his word. Our strength is found only in Christ. But he still has one more place that he wants us to grow, and that's in our thankfulness. And that's point number three this morning. Thankfulness is the fruit of a heart changed by Christ. Thankfulness is the fruit of a heart changed by Christ. Colossians 1 verse 12 says this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, I love that Paul ends this section with the reason to have hope to accomplish anything that he has said previously. Paul looks at the church at Colossae and in that looking at us and he says, do you want all of this to be true of your life? Do you want this to be your story? What do you have to do? Look to Christ. Look to your redemption. So Paul calls the church to be thankful. But he calls the church to be thankful in three very specific ways. 
and three things that Jesus has accomplished on your behalf that you should be thankful for. The first of these that he says is that he's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. And this might be the part of the verse, if you're like me, many times you see what's coming and you want to get to the good part, right? Where it talks about the redemption, the saving of from our sin, Jesus transferring us from darkness to light. And so we skip to that part, but we miss this. But I encourage you, friends, don't do that. Look at that text again. What Paul is saying is that the Christian should be thankful that Christ allows us to share in an inheritance that will never fade or crumble. I want you to think about this in light of the book of Joshua that we just finished as a church. What happens at the end of the book of Joshua? God's people get their promised land. The land that was promised to Abraham. God fulfilled his promise to them and they got this land that was theirs. And that was the mountaintop moment, right? And nothing would ever happen to it. Except go read the book of Judges right afterwards. What happens? Israel's captured. Cities are destroyed. The promise is burned. And the whole rest of the Old Testament is yearning and longing for the ultimate promise that God gave, which was the Messiah. But friends, when I think about that, and then I think about what God has done for his people, Jesus, through the cross, gave us an inheritance that will never crumble and never fade. But even more than that, he's made you an heir of that kingdom. Look at this, Romans 8, 16. The apostle Paul tells us that the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So that inheritance that God gave to his people in Joshua was a foretaste of the true inheritance that he was going to give, which is the inheritance of the gospel, that one that would never fade and never crumble, that if you are a son or daughter of the living God, that you have a promise in the future that you are an heir to a kingdom that will never end. You should be thankful that you have a kingdom that will never end. But second... He's delivered you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. You see, I've heard many times salvation described as Jesus is my lifeguard. Maybe you've heard this one. It goes a little something like this. I was drowning and I yelled out for God to save me. And Jesus, as the lifeguard, came in, scooped me up, rescued me, or he threw me a life preserver and he rescued me out of the water. And he may be saying, Jake, I don't really see why that's wrong. What's the problem with it? And the issue with that, although I understand the heart behind it, the issue is that it doesn't actually explain our condition that we were in. It explains Jesus and his saving, but it doesn't explain our condition. And this is where the Apostle Paul tells us what our condition is. If we're not drowning, what are we? And this is where we go to the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, what I want you to do is I want you to look and I want you to say, what is my condition or what was my condition before I came to Christ? Here we go. And you were what? Dead. Underline that. Highlight that. Circle it. Dead. 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Friend, your condition is not one of drowning and needing a life preserver. Your condition's death. That you weren't in a pool drowning. That your condition is you are in a spiritual morgue with a cold, dead body under the power of this domain of darkness that Paul says. This domain is controlled by Satan. He's ruling over you, destroying you, leading you to eternal destruction. It says you were children of wrath. That means that you were an enemy of God, that God's wrath was directed towards you and it was gonna be towards you for all of eternity because he's a holy and righteous God and he cannot be in the presence of sin. So without Christ, all you are is dead and heading to more and more death. I'm thankful it doesn't end there though. Christ, you see, still intervenes on our behalf in his mercy. Verse four of Ephesians two, but God, so thankful for those two words, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, here's what happens when you come to know Christ. You're that dead body in the spiritual morgue. Jesus walks into that room. He sees your condition and he looks at you and he says what he says in Luke 8 to this little girl that he rises from the dead. I love that story in Luke 8. Jesus goes into this room where this little girl is dead and her father had called him in to, to help her. And everybody thought that he wasn't going to be able to do anything. And Jesus just goes over and touches her. And he says, little one, rise. And what happens? She rises. And that's what Jesus did to us if you are in Christ. You were dead. And Jesus looked at you and he said, because of the gospel, because of what I have accomplished for you, I say to you, rise and live again. You see, Jesus has the power to bring the dead to life. And that's my story. And I hope it's your story. You see, in doing so, though, he's placed you into his kingdom. Did you notice that in the text that Paul says that he's transferred you out of that domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, that you are now no longer shackled to the past sin and shame that you have, that you have redemption from it. That redemption was purchased by the blood of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. And so now you stand as a ransom son or daughter of the living God delivered from death by the power of Jesus Christ. Christ. Friends, should you be thankful for that? Yes. But it doesn't even end there. Paul finishes and he says, lastly, the forgiveness of our sins Jesus accomplishes for us. You see, through the finished work of the cross, we are not only made alive in Christ, but our sins, the darkness in which we once lived is no longer there. Psalm 103, 12 
says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Friend, do you understand? I love this. I'll never get tired of talking about this. Do you understand that when God looks at you, when the heavenly father looks at you as a redeemed son or daughter of his, he no longer sees any of your sin. None of it. All he sees is the blood of his son. All he sees is his child. All he sees is somebody who is an heir to his kingdom that will never fade. Jesus did it all. It's all covered. It's all gone. And so I've been made alive. I've been forgiven. I've been cleansed. I've been adopted into the family of God. And when I look at that, and I look at all Christ has done for me, the only thing I can do is bow before the cross and say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for saving an ungrateful, undeserving sinner like myself. You see, friends, God would have been completely justified to leave us in our sin, to let me die in my death. But instead, he died for me to give me life. He called my name and he brought me out of the grave and now I have eternity to thank him. And friends, one of the greatest ways that we can thank Jesus is to live by his word as Paul taught us here, to teach it to others, that they too may be called by the heavenly father out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light to go from an enemy of God to a son or daughter of the living God. Friends, is that your story this morning? Couple application points. Number one, remember, true wisdom comes from God's word. True wisdom comes from God's word. Stop trying to find wisdom in so many other sources. Stop trying to find God's will in so many other sources. Trust that his word is sufficient for you. Second, trust that God's will for your life is your sanctification. Trust that, believe it, that God wants to make you more like Jesus on a day-to-day basis. Third, stop relying on your own strength and trust in the strength of Christ. Friend, don't be so foolish. Rest in the power of Jesus. It's unlimited that he has the strength to conquer death. Surely he can handle whatever situation you're in. And lastly, thank Christ daily for all he's accomplished on your behalf. You see, the mark of a true Christian is one who lives a life that is thankful every single day because they've been given a gift that they never deserved but that Jesus poured out on them so graciously. Friends, be thankful. Jesus is God and he has saved us.